And I want to say very little about Brad Pitt for this reason alone, that he's not in the film for that many minutes of, of running time. And I don't want to get into all the particulars there. But the fact that when he shows up, it's like a jolt of energy. The film really comes alive when he's there. And it's partly just like, hey, it's Brad Pitt. And we all have that response, right? It's Brad Pitt. But also, again, without spoiling anything, the, the way his character kind of rejuvenates the storyline, just brings something extra to it, okay? And the fact that if he had more screen time as a character, and if it were, we're getting into all the ifs, what if, and if you were acting opposite Ryan Reynolds, I think potentially it'd become a very different film. And at the risk of actually, I don't want to say destabilizing, but certainly affecting one of your most important points earlier, that this really is a vehicle for Sandra Bullock. What would happen if you had more of Brad Pitt and opposite someone like Ryan Reynolds? the balance is going to is going to be adjusted in the script and it could be a, it actually could even be a much better film but it would be a very different film than the one we're talking about hello and welcome to at the movies with mike and marie a show where two film professors talk about movies i'm marie westhaver and i'm mike giuliano and today we're going to talk about the movies the lost city and morbius starting with the lost city so, Mike, this was, I think, just a fun movie to watch. But where do we start with The Lost City? Well, I enjoyed it, but it, it's such a derivative film in a lot of ways. And one of the reviews made me laugh because of what it said about the film, but particularly the headline, where the headline was Raiders of the 1980s Blockbusters. <laughs> and then went on to describe the film as being cheerfully dumb and all those things where, you know, it is, it's just, it's a popcorn movie. Providentially, you've got popcorn behind you. It's just that kind of a film. You you just enjoy it. You don't take it too seriously. It does not take itself very seriously. But in terms of what it's doing, actually, think back to the 1980s. And of course, the, the real role model, if I can put it that way, would be uh, Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark. The extent to which he and other directors have played off of a kind of adventure film format that really goes way back in Hollywood history. You know, back to the silent film era, you can think of films along these lines, but specifically in the 1980s, obviously Raiders is an example, or Romancing the Stone and so on. And my critical response was like that of most reviewers to it, that in some ways, this is not only in the, the manner or style of that, but it, it's a copy in a lot of ways. And frankly, a sort of pale copy, or as one critic said, sort of like a copy of a copy. And so even though I enjoyed it, there were so many times during it where I just felt that it was like, enjoyably dumb, but sometimes enjoyably dumb slides into just dumb, you know? There are places for me where subjectively that happened. I thought, oh, come on, brother, give me a break. You know, so something was too extreme or too improbable or just too derivative. But the fact of the matter is, if you're just looking for sheer escapism and just to, to smile and smirk and, and have fun with the movie and at the movie's expense, this is a movie that I think allows for that. I love that saying cheerfully dumb. That really is an excellent way to to talk about the movie, but I think that's actually part of its strength. And part of that is, I mean, I think Channing Tatum is having a moment, wouldn't you say? He is in everything, but he's yeah. always Channing Tatum. Well, that's the thing. This is very much a star-driven film, and, and that's actually one of the selling points. You go to see Sandra Bullock, you go to see Channing Tatum, and they're doing things they've done before. It's a persona that you recognize. And you always know you're watching a movie star. And, and for that matter, it's really funny, like when Brad Pitt shows up in, in very much a supporting role, you know, you just you have all that. Uh, I call it agreeable baggage. You think of actors and things you've seen them in. And even though all these actors have done better work elsewhere in much better films, essentially, the audience is inclined to, to like them, to want to see them on screen. I have to say, Sandra Bullock, I thought, you know, it was such a natural fit for her. I, 
I think she probably just could walk on the set and do a scene like that because we'll talk in more detail, but it's such a tailor-made role in that respect. With Channing Tatum, I've got to say, it seems to me kind of forced or self-conscious at times, but why don't I hand back to you, Marie, because we should start to talk about them in terms of the characters they're playing. And again, that kind of matchup of star and character and the extent to which I think, frankly, a script like this one when it's put together, they're thinking of particular actors and, and perhaps even of the ones we're watching now, because as you watch the film, you think, gee, this is a good role for Sandra Bullock, or gee, this is a natural for Channing Tatum. So let me hand it back to you to, so we can start to talk about the actual characters and storyline. Point out that one of the things that struck me watching was, I, like you, I was thinking about Raiders of the Lost Ark or Raiders of the 1980s blockbusters and the whole Romancing the Stone and the romance novel idea. And if you kind of scratch below the surface, there's actually a few things going on here that I thought were really pretty cool. One is that because it's a romance novel idea, all the nudity is the men for a change. You know, instead of it having, you know, what you're used to, the male gaze and Sandra Bullock, who's a very beautiful woman, obviously, uh, you would expect her to be the one showing some skin. Instead, it's Channing Tatum, the whole Fabio thing that he does. And then, you know, having Brad Pitt come in doing his whole Brad Pitt thing. I thought that was actually pretty refreshing and kind of made it like the experience of reading a romance novel where nothing is realistic. It's not meant to be realistic, but it's meant to just sort of playfully have fun with the whole idea of the romance novel and the adventure novel and the Indiana Jones thing. But Sandra Bullock gets to be Indiana Jones. I really did think that that was the one thing I found really pretty amusing and a little bit daring. You make a really good point there. Her character is a novelist and she writes Harlequin romance type stories. She, you know, she's a bestseller. She's a celebrity, if you will. And he, the character that Channing Tatum is playing, he's the cover model for the books. So, you know, his character is meant to be sort of like, uh, you know, dumb as, as a box of rocks and so on. And that's where with Channing Tatum, I mean, he does it convincingly. I don't know if that's a compliment. He does it convincingly. But the thing is, I felt that he was like overly self-conscious or kind of mannered with it sometimes to play that dumb. And you can fault the script as much as the performance for that. But in any event, to your point, which is very well taken, it's an Indy Jones type story. But of course, here it will be a female protagonist. Uh, she's the romance novelist. And she's in many ways, uh, you know, the celebrity and the wealthy one and, and so on. And we identify with her. Frankly, he I mean, he, he's a cover model. I mean, he's, he's known to the public and, and they like the image. And to one of your earlier points, you would think ordinarily in terms of gender tendencies or traditions in Hollywood films, that she would be the one who's being showcased for the male gaze. But you make a very good point that because he's the cover model, he's the one actually, who, you know, any opportunity to take off the shirt, basically. So when they have public appearances, like on a book tour, the fans are, are like, you know, take your shirt off kind of comments and all. And he's not shy about, about doing that. And then to sort of cut to the chase in terms of a selling point for the film, I suppose, is that he actually is mooning the audience in, in, in a later scene. And, and that's certainly more skin than, than, than she will show. So it, it hits very directly on, on the points that you're making. But to, to move forward from that, the fact that she's this celebrated novelist and, and he's kind of sort of famous and, and, you know, famous for being famous on the cover of a book uh, way. The fact that this is where the movie really has so many contrivances and it's just, you just got to go with it if you're going to go at all. The fact that she's on this book tour, and I don't want to spoil all the particulars of the storyline, but the fact that uh, essentially she's you know, kidnapped while on a book tour. And then, man, it takes some extreme twists and turns 
at this point. So just to give a sense of what, what, what the twists and turns will be, even though her novels are just, you know, light romantic things and, and, and kind of, a, you know, airport reading rack kind of material as best I can gauge, the fact that her late husband was an archaeologist. So even though one might, you know, in terms of like, you know, high and mighty literary criticism dismiss the books, they are well-researched. And, and the film makes that point because of her husband's archaeology work, because of her own scholarly side, uh, you know, that she knows archaeology. So therefore, she has put something in one of her novels about this lost treasure called The Crown of Fire. And, and you know, and, and it turns out that there, there actually was, or, or at least in mythology, there was such a thing. And, 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 you know, and so there's this billionaire, this eccentric billionaire played by Daniel Radcliffe, of all people. And this, this starts to explain the reasons why somebody would want to kidnap her. Like, well, maybe she does know where on an isolated island to find this thing. And so that's already like a really far-fetched premise. And you just got to go with it at that point. There are times where I was saying, oh, brother, and scoffing and this and that, but kind of smiling too, like just the audacity, the shameless quality of what they'll do to get you into the story. But where I start to put on the brakes and, and, and where like at a certain point you can be implausible and then it's really implausible. Here's where it, where it hit me. Okay, so this whole ridiculous kidnapping story and then the fact that she will have to be Indy Jones because she's out in the jungle basically and he's going to be along for the ride, if you will. And not to go into all the details of the storyline, but but the, the, the novelist and the cover model will be sort of in this together, right? And, and then, so anyway, when she's been kidnapped like this, I know billionaires have a lot of money, <laughs> to say the obvious, but this guy, this eccentric billionaire has undertaken this extensive dig, this expensive archaeology, and, and he wants to find this treasure, the supposed treasure. I was sitting there like an accountant. I was thinking he has dozens of people working for him. They're on this island. They built their facilities, like essentially a hotel for workers and this and that. And they have like the pit, the mine where they're working. And, and I thought, think of how many dozen people are employed doing this. All the weeks or months they're doing, how much could this thing be worth? I mean, for reasons of ego, he might want to go for it. This is a fabled treasure. But I thought in, in any actuarial sense, it didn't make any sense at all that, that all this would be expended, much less that he would feel somehow by kidnapping her, she could provide the key to the treasure, essentially. That's the point where you're in such adventure storybook material that even though I'm going with it, I do start to put on the brakes a bit where, where from being like, you know, amusingly, or cheerfully dumb, it just becomes dumb in places. I love that you took the actuarial approach because it's clear, Mike, you have not read a lot of romance novels because, you know, the ridiculousness is just the background noise and you you can plunge the characters into all kinds of improbable situations because that's how you end up as Sandra Bullock in a purple sequin jumpsuit. I mean, the outfit itself is so ridiculous and so inappropriate for what she has to go through. And by the way, she looks amazing in the purple jumpsuit, which is the point, which is where they would go with it in an actual romance novel. And then beyond that, you know, the ridiculous situations are absolutely what you would find in an actual book that was trying to deal with the same thing. So I found that just sort of hilarious, kind of a spoof and a send up of romance novels themselves. And I also want to point out that Sandra Bullock herself is 16 years older than Channing Tatum. So again, there's this element of really uh, pushing this to women, not men. And, and it really works on that level because of the ridiculousness that you'd have to look like Sandra Bullock for any of this to happen to you in real life. Well, but that's I mean, what makes it escapist. 
you have to smile at that purple jumpsuit. Like even the, in scenes that I was dismissing as being really dumb, I thought, you know, you have the really green jungle, if you will, and then this purple jumpsuit and then some of the footwear and so on. Like she's really not dressed for the jungle. Let's put it that way. So it is funny that way. For me, it, it's a little less amusing as it goes along. You know what I'm saying? Like for me, there's a fatigue factor. Like, okay, it's funny that she's in the purple jumpsuit, but you know, how many scenes can, can you get out of that scenario? But I'm so glad you mentioned the age difference because- just as the romance, and I, and I this summer I will devote myself to reading romance novels. I'm, I'm going to follow your advice because I, I, I'm lacking in that respect, okay? But you do make a really good point about the age difference. The fact that she is not only the Indy Jones type protagonist, but the fact that she's a mature person. And there's comment on that in the script, actually, in terms of how she's sort of like the adult in the room or the adult in the jungle to some extent. And he's really very much the boy toy, if I can put it that way. I mean, he's, he's so much younger and he's, he's deliberately... He's deliberately presented as being um, non-reflective. I'll be polite and say non-reflective. He's not particularly a thinking person that way, or at least at first doesn't seem to be one. And, and, in, a, and in a sentimental way, and novels would do this as much as films, as the film goes along, and this is no great spoiler, even though they initially have such a discrepancy in character traits, and that they, you know, they, they, I mean, they appear together on stage at book events because they have to, it's contractual, but they really don't like each other. I mean, she really doesn't want anything to do with him and he's a showboat and all that. And you know that as the story goes along and they're in peril, you know that's gonna bring them closer together. I mean, the template for that would be in a great film, something like John Huston's African Queen, where you have you know the mismatched you know, characters, but when they're in peril together, they will work together and eventually, of course, you know, fall in love. So it's no great spoiler to say that in a romance novel, people fall in love. And so, Maria, I, I see your point there. But how do you feel about some of the points I was making that there's dumb and there's dumb? There are times where I just thought it was so far-fetched. Like, even within that genre, wouldn't it be times where you have to sort of know, like, I don't want to sound like hard and fast and adamant, like where to draw the line, but sometimes it just gets maybe so extreme that, that if, you, if you start to dismiss something, then maybe you're not enjoying it quite as much. You make a great point. And I want to ask you what you think about the fact that it was supposed to be Ryan Reynolds and not Channing Tatum. I can't help but think Ryan Reynolds is just much more of a cynical, wise-ass kind of a guy. I think if the, if he had done this role, I think it would have been a different movie. But I also want to make sure I get in there, Mike, that if you seriously want to get into some romance novels and see how bad it can be in terms of implausible anything by Danielle Steele. And you'll think, oh my God, this was high art. What do you think about Ryan Reynolds in the role for Channing Tatum? Because I think it plays to Channing Tatum's, he's just sort of this lovable lunk kind of guy, where Ryan Reynolds is a little more cerebral. Yeah, I agree with you completely. It could work with Ryan Reynolds, but it would be a somewhat different dynamic. The chemistry would have to be different there. The great bit about casting Channing Tatum is that he's just a nice guy, right? He's got that, I always call it the nice guy image. And even if the character is not like the brightest bulb, th th that's not necessarily a complete demerit. You know what I mean? He's just, you know, you kind of kind of smile and, oh, that, that, that's what the guy's like, you know, and he's the yeah, God love him kind of, kind of response to him. But the thing is, there are so many favorable associations with him as an actor. And the fact that Ryan Reynolds would be more cerebral actually would hurt in the earlier scenes in the film because at the beginning of this film, he really does have to seem like the proverbial dumb guy who's got, you know, he's got the muscular build and he's handsome and the Fabio type associations. So yeah, if you're looking for a cover model for a romance novel, here's your guy. And in real life, he is like a live action cartoon in those early scenes. Whereas I think Ryan Reynolds would have a little more, I don't want to say depth so much as just there seems to be like a little more complexity or a little more to him that way. Whereas Channing Tatum, 
again, uh, is it a compliment, but he, he can play dumb really well in those early scenes. One thing I think might have played off better, I think in some ways Channing Tatum is completely eclipsed whenever Brad Pitt shows up on the screen. I actually think Ryan Reynolds could have held his own better against Brad Pitt. But you know what, Marie, that again would make it a very different film. And I want to say very little about Brad Pitt for this reason alone, that he's not in the film for that many minutes of, of running time. And I don't want to get into all the particulars there. But the fact that when he shows up, it's like a jolt of energy. The film really comes alive when he's there. And it's partly just like, hey, it's Brad Pitt. And we all have that response, right? It's Brad Pitt. But also, again, without spoiling anything, the, the way his character kind of rejuvenates the storyline, just brings something extra to it, okay? And the fact that if he had more screen time as a character, and if it were, Ryan, we're getting into all the ifs, what if? And, and if he were acting opposite Ryan Reynolds, I think potentially it'd become a very different film. And at the risk of actually, I don't want to say destabilizing, but certainly affecting one of your most important points earlier, that this really is a vehicle for Sandra Bullock. What would happen if you had more of Brad Pitt and opposite someone like Ryan Reynolds? The balance is going to is going to be adjusted in the script, and it could be a, it actually could even be a much better film, but it would be a very different film than the one we're talking about. Well, I think um, that the in the end, I think this movie is visual potato chips and definitely slanted towards a female audience. And if you can, you know, not take it seriously because you never would. I think this will have a really successful run when it's in streaming. It's a film that had so-so business at the box office, but you make a really good point about it, namely that because it is enjoyable, whether you're laughing with it or at it or simultaneously doing those things, um, it's the sort of film that people would enjoy. You know, you're kicking back on the sofa some night and what are you going to stream? And Marie make a really important observation that with a film like this one's like, hey, this will be fun. And it is for the most part. Yeah. And in the privacy of your home, no one knows you're watching this trash. So it's even more enjoyable for that reason. But let's go to what I think is probably more of a blockbuster kind of movie, which is Morbius. And I say that because, honestly, anything with Jared Leto in it is worth watching. He's just so, he's arresting. Now, this is yet another in the whole comic book genre, which every time I go into one of these movies, I think, I already feel like I've seen this before. There's a, a certain tedium to, you know, yet another trip down comic book lane. But I did think this movie had its moments. What was your overall feeling about Morbius? Well, speaking of moments, and I don't want to seem like I'm obsessed with running time, but you and I have often talked about Marvel movies in terms of excessive running time. And a major selling point for me, and I'm not a big fan of Morbius as a film, but it does have its moments. But speaking of moments, it's the rare Marvel film that's under two hours. It's 104 minutes. And what I liked about it in that respect was the fact that it has a relatively streamlined story. It has, you know, clearly defined characters, and we'll be talking about that, of course. And there's there's a narrative arc that carries through it. There aren't too many subsidiary plot lines or distractions or, or setting you up for sequels. It does have some of that, but it has a, a forward momentum in that respect. And for me, that was a selling point. But in terms of why it didn't work for me, I'll get into that obviously in more detail, but I'm not the only one to have that response. It has not done particularly well at the theatrical box office. It opened well, but tellingly, it fell very dramatically at second weekend in theaters. So what we're getting at here is what I call the word of mouth critic. The fact that if I'm feeling underwhelmed by it and not caring for certain aspects of it, I sometimes think, well, am I just being grumpy and you know not liking this Marvel film? No, even other people who actually follow that type of film, that kind of storyline, 
something didn't quite work for a lot of viewers because that's where you go home and tell your friends, you know, I wasn't crazy about it. So Marie, let me turn it back over to you because if I start talking about why I'm not crazy about it, well, I'll, I'll go on for three hours. So why don't you go on for a bit? Well, I like the fact that the, the name Morbius immediately makes you think of the word morbid. And I thought that the ethical dilemma here was really pretty interesting where, you know, a person is born with a blood disease that can then be, they can have a different kind of healthier life by drinking the blood of, you know, bats and people, and, you know, synthetic blood and whatever. And it gets into this ethical problem of, are you just supposed to lay down and die? Or are you allowed to do everything in your power to stay alive? I mean, it is a kind of a comic book setup. But I did think that that was an interesting way to approach it. I was sort of intrigued by that premise. I also thought it was sort of interesting the way instead of it being like the time in the Matrix where you see, you know, bullets in super slow-mo, there was sort of a vampire time thing that went on here that I thought was in terms of every time you go see a Marvel movie, you're expecting really well done action. And I did think that those scenes were pretty good. Where I thought it sort of faded for me was Jared Leto kind of, I don't know, it just seemed like Alice Cooper goes vampire. And that was the thing I found sort of disappointing because Jared Leto is a much better actor. He deserved better than that. Marie, that's one of the main reservations I had about the film. And speaking of vampires, the film's working title as they were shooting it was Plasma. <laughs> and, and so in terms of vampire stories, it's a twist on that because this is a vampire who can go out during the day. And the movie does have a little bit of fun with that, but it's not a film that's notable for its humor. So a few things worked against it for me. One was actually that, that lack of, of humor for the most part. It really is a fairly dark and kind of morbid look and texture tone to the film. And for me, that was a bit of a downer after a while. I wanted something, maybe not levity, but something to leaven it. And by way of being disappointed that way, I was really disappointed in Jared Leto's performance after a while because I understand why they would want to present him that way. And really, we're talking about it as a vampire story, but his character is really more of a Dr. Frankenstein type character because, you know, he wants to save himself. And, you know, there, there's some incidentals in the storyline that we could go into, but in any event that he's trying to investigate and find out how he can keep himself alive and ticking that way. But as he does that, he's so serious and somber. And you know what? So unsympathetic. This is where the film really failed me. I thought his performance kind of stalled at a certain level. It just doesn't develop much beyond a certain level. And he just kind of, he's going through the motions. I love what you said about Alice Cooper, because I was thinking the same thing. If you were to take Alice Cooper in full makeup and throw him into a movie, it might be amusing or at least bracing, but after a while, it'd just be like more of the same, right? And this is a film, I think, in, in which that happens. And because he's so unsympathetic, you know what? After a while, I really didn't care that much about him. And he has... You know, and, and there's another character who's meant to sort of be like the obvious villain. And so Jared Leto's character is supposed to be more, if not heroic, at least sympathetic. But when, it, when you don't find yourself liking either one of them, that's a problem. It's very much because by way of audience identification, I think they're both bad guys in, in a way. Marie, let me turn it back over to you in terms of like what's going on there, that, that dynamic between two characters. Let me hand off to you on this one. You know, I think you hit the nail on the head with that, Mike, because I think what they meant to create with showing these two young boys with this same blood disease, suffering, you know, in exile at this hospital sort of situation where they're thrown together and, you know, create a friendship where no one else understands them because nobody else has, you know, lived through what they have. 
and you know they kind of diverge and then come back together it's meant to be sort of harry pottery where there's something you know you and these other these other few people who know what you know live in this sort of world where you all understand certain things and do things most people don't even have to consider doing but it doesn't work and what she said about the humor i know exactly what you're talking about and what it made me think of was how similar this premise was to venom and how venom works so much better because there were moments where you would laugh out loud at the irreverent things that venom would say because he was just sort of empowered to just be monstrous in his own way and say the thing you don't say but morbius never got to do that and i think that is why i hate to say it venom is a better movie because venom has its own issues but it was more fun than this movie I've been thinking along the same lines. I mean, I was not a fan of Venom, but by comparison, I think it's the better of, of the two. And we're getting into the realm of what we could call like Spider-Man spinoffs. And this is where you start to think about, okay, take a franchise and then spin off various elements of it. And without spoiling anything about, and as always with a Marvel film, you got to stay through the end credits, right? And as you stay through those credits, you're going to realize, aha, here are some more connections to what we're talking about at the moment. And the thing is, I think at that point, it's a vampire metaphor. I'll, I'll indulge in here. But you're kind of feeding off yourself or feeding off itself at that point. You know what I mean? To me, it seems a little smarmy at that point that you've got this vampire storyline and you're spinning off of Spider-Man in various ways. And I'm just thinking, you know what? It's almost, you know, shameful the way in which in which it's exploiting certain material and in a way that really kind of turns me off as a viewer. I feel like I'm like just as they're manipulating material, I feel like I'm being manipulated as a viewer. I mean, I know that's a strong statement to make, but Marie, how do you feel about that? Well, I go into these movies expecting to be manipulated, but I want it to be done skillfully. So I feel like I'm being entertained. And in this, you really do feel very removed from Morbius, even though he is the more sympathetic of the two boys that grow up. It tries to get you to invest in the characters by showing them when they're young and vulnerable. You know, nobody asks for some sort of disease. Everybody has a, you know, the right to sort of pursue their best life or health and, you know, being able to keep going. But somehow once they become adults, all of that kind of falls away. And what you're left with is the sort of not well-drawn characters. They're just sort of stock characters going through the motions. And Jared Leto deserves better. He's, he's done better work. I always wonder when people take these roles, if it's because they, they just want to throw their hat in there with the blockbuster extravaganza that's going on, or if they have children who they want to show, hey, you know, I can also do movies that you would appreciate because they're kind of Saturday morning cartoons writ large. But I'm not sure what made him decide to do this movie or how happy he was with what he got to do with it. Well, you're offering a lot of plausible uh, reasons why you would take the role. I mean, all those things make sense to me. You know, a big paycheck doesn't hurt either. But what we engage in now is that kind of armchair, you know, Monday morning uh, quarterbacking. And, and, and it seems to me that, you know, I'm being sympathetic to the actors here. You know, your agent pitches something or you get a script somehow. What you think about it as you head into a project may not be quite the same as what we're thinking about it as we watch the end result. And that's where I'm sympathetic to actors oftentimes because so much can go right or wrong with a picture that it becomes just endless speculation as, as to, you know, what happened here. But the thing about Jared Leto is with an actor like that, you know what, he's got a really full career. 
and they're going to be hits and misses and this and that. And in the long term, it's just another item on, on the resume, if you will. You know what I mean? It's not going to stop his career. The film itself has been disappointing critically and commercially. But gosh, I don't think it's going to stop him from getting future roles. I just think he might want to be a little more careful about taking on this kind of, you know, Marvel universe endeavor as as in well what does he want to do with because as an actor he has pushed the envelope on occasions right i mean he's been known to do that this film does not push the envelope that way and this marie this is what the point you were making as an actor he could do a lot more a lot better than what he does here now he was also in house of gucci recently which we both watched and i think we both agreed he was one of the best things in it and in it of course he's wearing all these prosthetics to look not like jared leto in this movie he insisted on not going that route and have them do everything with CGI instead, which I think is sort of a peculiar decision. I also wanted to point out that one of the reasons I think they were trying to cast a wide net with in terms of the references and stuff, because Pokemon was used as an influence for the betrayal of Morbius's powers, which, you know, I would never have thought, hey, let's throw some Pokemon in there. But again, I don't think it worked in terms of making the movie work. No, you know what? At that point, it's sort of a pop cultural grab bag, isn't it? And, yes. and, I can, and, we, and we can smile at that. But but even as I'm watching it, you know, it starts to lose its entertainment value because I just think, oh, come on now. Like they're just it's like throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. And, and I thought, Pokemon, I thought, well, why not? I mean, why are you doing this? Just you know, toss something else into the mix. That's a great. It is a grab bag. But that does bring us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com or also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.